Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanai and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who were constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethanar, Bozanai, and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great gods. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that, so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding this temple that was built many years ago on that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in this first year of Cyrus, King, Babylon, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shesh Bazaar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present it has been under construction but is not yet finished. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. 
Also, the gold and silver articles in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai, and you other official, officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in, this con- in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, given given to them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from the house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanai, and their associates, carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel.
Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys, for reading that. It's a big chunk. Um, so let's pray and ask God for, uh, God for his help uh, as we look at it now. Loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Father, we thank you that uh, your word brings joy to your people. Uh, and so we ask that you would help us now uh, to hear what you have to say to us through these two chapters, we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, I asked a question, and that was, uh, what do you expect the Christian life to be like? What, what do you expect to happen if you follow Jesus? And we saw, didn't we, that in Ezra chapter 4, God's people should expect opposition. They should expect people to oppose them, to, to hate them if they try to live life God's way. That's what we saw last week. And this week, I want to begin with a, a different question. And that is, what do you expect the Christian life to feel like? What do you expect the Christian life to feel like? If someone asked you, what does it feel like to be a Christian? What would you say? What Bible passages would you take them to? I wonder if any of these uh, come to mind. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Or James 1 verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 8, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, it's as surprising as it might seem, especially after last week, the Bible tells us that God's people should expect to feel joy. In fact, God commands his people to feel joy. Uh, you would have thought a little bit about this uh, life groups this week. If you're in a life group or if you've been reading Enjoying God by Tim Chester, uh, the Christian life is a life of joy. That's something we should expect to feel. And we can see that's true in the days of Ezra and the people back then. Uh, just look at how our passage ends again in chapter 6, verse 22. It says, for seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. God's people, by the end of chapter 6, are full of joy. And like I say, it's quite a dramatic turnaround considering where we left them in chapter 4. Remember, they had experienced persistent, severe opposition. And the result was that the, the work on the temple had stopped. It, it had ceased. Things were not looking good for God's people. But then here we find them rejoicing, celebrating, filled, it says, with this joy. And so the big question is, how? How? What causes such a transformation? What enables such joy? That's the big question for us this morning, and it's what the, the writer of Ezra wants to answer for us over these two chapters. And my hope is that as we look at his answers, we look at the, the people's joy back then, we'll learn something of what it means to have that same joy today. So we're going to see three things this morning. Uh, the people's joy comes from hearing God's word, from seeing God's work, and from knowing God's will. So first, joy comes from hearing 
God's word. Chapter 4, as we said, ends with things looking pretty bleak for God's people. They've faced opposition. The temple building project has been stopped for around 15 years. But then we read in 5 verse 1, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. God sends his prophets Haggai and Zechariah to speak his word to his people. And in doing so, he wants to remind them of his perspective. So if, you, if you've got a Bible with you, then turn, back, turn to, to Haggai chapter 1. It's a little bit further on uh, in the Old Testament. If not, it's going to be on the screen, so that's fine. But Haggai chapter 1, we can see exactly what it is God wanted to say to his people at this point in history. Haggai 1 verse 1 says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, and uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give care for You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expect much, but see, it's turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Turn back to Ezra Chapter 5, do you see what the Lord is saying through his prophet? For years, the temple work has been at a standstill. For years, the people have abandoned the building project. And yes, while that was initially due to opposition, it was no longer the case. The reason the temple building hadn't started up again was that the people had lost perspective. Years had gone by and God's priorities were no longer their priorities. And so Haggai says to them, look, you're spending so much time on your new loft conversion and your conservatory that you've completely forgotten the Lord. You're so concerned with building your nice panelled house that you've forgotten the Lord's house. And so Haggai's message, it's it's a message of rebuke. God is using his prophet to wake his people up, to remind them that he is the God over them. And so his temple should be their priority. That's Haggai. What about Zechariah? Well, Zechariah's message begins in much the same way. He, He rebukes the people for being like their ancestors and forgetting the Lord. But then just listen to what he says in Uh, It says to them at the end of Zechariah chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, it'll be on the screen. 1 verse 16 says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house will be rebuilt. 
And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Through Zechariah, God rebukes the people again, but then he comforts them. He tells them that though they have forgotten him, he has never forgotten them. Though they've become so busy, so absorbed in their own lives, that they've lost sight of him, he has not taken his eyes off of them for a second. And so you see, God sends his prophets to speak his word to his people. His word of comfort and his word of rebuke. And we can see the the result in Ezra chapter 5, verse 2, which says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shatir, and Joshua, son of Josedak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. God's word is effective. It wakes the people up. It reminds them of the God who is over them, verse 1, and it shows them what it means to live life with him. God's word moves the people to action and sustains them as they carry out the work. And so if you look across to chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, So the elders of the Jews continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. And so you see, God's people need God's word. That was true for the people back then. And it remains true for us today. Because just remember, these these were not half-hearted, not that bothered believers, were they? These were the people that we heard about in chapters 1 and 2 that had given up everything for God. They'd left the comfort and the security of Babylon behind and returned to Jerusalem. We might say these were on fire for the Lord, full of passion, full of joy, full of obedience. At least that is what they used to be. Because then opposition came. Things got tough in the land. Life wasn't what they thought it would be. And so slowly, over time, their love for God went cold. Their faith went flat. And their joy went dim. And maybe that's a bit how you're feeling at the moment. Maybe you're just, just a bit worn down by everything. You found yourself over the past weeks and months saying, I just feel flat. Spiritually, emotionally, I'm struggling to find any joy. If that's you, then Ezra 5 says, don't give up on God's word. Don't stop listening to the Lord whether that's on your own or along with others, whether it's reading it or listening to it, whether it's praying it or discussing it, whatever you do, don't give up on God's word. Keep listening. Keep hearing the voice of the God who made you and who loves you. Because joy comes as we hear God's word. But that's not all. Because next we see that joy comes as we see God's work. Work on the temple begins again, and it's not long before it attracts the attention of Tatanai, this very powerful governor of the trans-Euphrates. 
And and Tatanai pays Jerusalem a visit. And in verse 3, he asks the people, who authorized you to rebuild the temple and to finish it? And what are the names of those who are constructing this building? Uh, It seems that that Tatanai is probably just doing his job. Uh, Such a significant building project in his region is bound to raise some questions. But we know, having just read chapter 4, that, well, we might wonder... Is this opposition again? Is this opposition raising its ugly head? And so as we begin to get worried, we then read verse 5. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, and his written reply received. You see, Tatanai is not the only one watching the people in Jerusalem. And so before we go any further, before we find out whether this is another threat to the people, another threat to the temple, the writer wants us to know that, or that God is watching over the whole thing. He's overseeing the situation. And so whatever is about to happen will happen only because God says it will. God is at work. And that's clearly seen in what happens next. Tatanai writes his letter to the king. He, he makes Darius aware of the situation. And in verse 9, he repeats those two questions that he asked the Jews. Who has given them authority and what are their names? And then verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, records the Jews' response, which essentially says, it was Cyrus, king of Persia, who gave us permission to rebuild the temple. In fact, he gave us all that we need. He gave us all the materials to build the temple and worship our God. You just need to go back to the archives, Darius, to find out that that we're telling the truth. And so that's exactly what Darius does. He searches the archives and he finds Cyrus' decree. And then in chapter 6, he responds to Tatanai's letter. And Darius' response, well, it stands in complete contrast to the one we saw back in chapter 4. I wonder if you noticed that as we read it. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. This is his response. He says, Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethsar, Bozanai, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on the temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on this site. You see, this time, having searched the archives, this pagan king wants to ensure that the temple building goes ahead without interference. In verses 8 and 9, he insists that all the expenses are paid by the royal treasury. Everything, including the animals for the sacrifices, are given to them, provided, free of charge. And then in verse 11, he threatens anyone who dares defy him. Anyone who disrupts the the building of the temple will have to face him. It's an amazing response. And the end of verse 10 shows us that that really it was was largely a self-serving response. King Darius wants to try and keep every god of every nation on his side. And so this isn't a unique policy for the Jews, but but just as with Cyrus back in chapter 1, The writer of Ezra doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that Darius' response is God's work. This is down to the Lord, the writer says. And so as the temple work is completed, we read in the second half of verse 14, 
they finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. And so you see, once again, we're meant to see that God is at work. He, he works behind the scenes through the decrees and policies of pagan kings. God is in control. There is not a moment in history in which he takes his eye off the ball. Not a single situation in all of Ezra that we've read so far in which he is not working to fulfill his purposes. And again, knowing that fills the people with joy. Verse 15, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Joy comes from seeing God's work. And again, the same is true today. Whether we fully understand the details or not, we can be absolutely sure that God continues to work in all things. Whether it's government policies or global pandemics, God is in control. He works to accomplish his purposes. And so nothing that we experience is random. Nothing that we experience is a mistake or a slip-up on God's part. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 28, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And of course, that, that doesn't mean we should expect an easy life. It doesn't mean we won't face opposition or trial or hardship. Chapter 4 was pretty clear on that. But it does mean that as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, that in all things, all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is watching his people. He is at work in his world. And it's as we remember that and as we recognize it in our lives that we will know the security of this certain joy of being kept by God whatever life throws at us. Joy comes as we see God's work. And then finally, joy comes as we know God's will. Chapters 4 to 6 have shown us that though things in life might seem up and down, though God's people might face opposition or, or lose focus, God continues to work to fulfill his purposes. Nothing will be able to stop him accomplishing his will. And so as the chapter, uh, chapter 6 draws to a close with the, the completion and dedication of the temple in verse 16, the work is done. Uh, the temple is built, the people rejoice, job done. That's not actually where the chapter ends, is it? Because as soon as the last brick is laid, the writer reminds us what it's all for. As the people bring sin offerings in verse 17 and install priests in verse 18, then celebrate the Passover in verse 19, 
we're reminded that the temple, the building, is not the climax. But it's the purpose for which it's built that we're meant to focus on. The temple was always meant to be the place where people could come and worship the living God. And that's exactly what we see happening. In verse 21, it's the the once exiled Jews and those who have separated themselves from their Gentile neighbours who come together in joyful worship of God. And so once again, we see this big theme in Ezra that God works to ensure that his people can worship him. God works to ensure that his people can worship him. That is his purpose. That's his will. Worship that brings joy to his people and glory to his name. And as we've seen a number of times in Ezra already, that purpose is ultimately fulfilled not in animal sacrifices or the Passover, not in rebuilt temples, but in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you see? God's will, his eternal purpose, has been accomplished in Christ. And so it's as we come to Christ, as we have faith in him, that we're welcomed into this joyful, eternal relationship with the God of the universe. It's because of Christ that we can approach God with the freedom of knowing our sins forgiven at the cross and the confidence of a future that is utterly secure because of him. It's through Christ that we can worship God in a way that brings joy to our hearts and glory to his name. How can we have joy in the Christian life? Well, joy comes as we listen to God's word, as we hear about Christ in the pages of Scripture. Joy comes as we see God's work, as we remember that God is working in all things to make us more like Christ and that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love that is in him. And joy comes as we know God's will, as we see God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ and so come to him in joy-filled worship. Let's pray that we would know more of that joy today. Let's pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that in him we have salvation. In him we have 
security and freedom and confidence to come to you. Father, in Christ we have joy that is unshakable, joy that is inexpressible, as Peter says. Father, please, by your Spirit, help us to know that joy today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.